This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of a very exciting conference coming up in February. CBF's ChurchWorks Conference creates a space each February for congregational ministers of education and spiritual formation to be equipped for the journey through creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks 2019 focuses on sharing the love of Christ by battling injustice, exclusion, and marginalization in our communities. Hear from unique voices of those bearing witness to Jesus Christ in their communities and creating a true sense of belonging to God and to one another. Join your colleagues February 25th through the 27th at 3rd Baptist Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Visit cbf.net backslash churchworks to register. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is a writer, a child advocate with Compassion International and professional optimist. Jen Wise lives in the mainline neighborhood of Philadelphia. She has a new book out, The Bright Life. Jen, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, for those that don't follow you online or read your writing, uh, tell us more about your story. Yeah, um, you know, I've been, I live in the Philly area with my family, and I've been writing for quite a while now. I went to seminary um, straight out of, uh, out of undergrad, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with that degree. I just knew I wanted to, you know, make a difference and help people kind of have a broad view of their faith and how it influences their life. Um, kind of, in, you know, just in every way. It's not just what you do on Sunday morning or how you vote or what you don't do, but it, you know, it is about how you interact with your neighbors, how, you know, you approach relationships, how you treat creation, just kind of every little part of life. Um, so after grad school, you know, I kind of started writing just be, just kind of unfolded before me. Um, I had you know opportunities to write some research proposals, and then started writing curriculum for different churches and ministries, and then eventually started writing on my own. Um, and that has been really fun, just to kind of get to write about what's on my heart, and um, yeah, just communicate the things that I really care about. And that you know has slowly turned into you know a bigger like a bigger platform of just, you know, engaging with other writers, getting to write this book and put this book out has been really um, exciting for me and getting to speak to groups of people, which I think is really fun. I used to think that was scary years ago, but now I've learned that it's kind of like writing, but you actually get that feedback from the people around you and you get to build a relationship, which I think is really fun. Now tell us a little bit more about the neighborhood you live in of Philly. One of the things I, I love about, I have a bunch of friends from Philly, is they specifically want you to know what town or neighborhood they're from. 
Yeah, that is definitely a thing there. It's pretty neighborhoody. So um, the area that we live in is just across, it's um, Lower Marion Township. It's just across the city line in an area called the main line. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's named the main line based on it was kind of the original train line coming out of the city out into the suburbs. And so it's all the little towns and villages along that train line. So like the train literally goes right by my house. You might even get to hear it while we're on the phone. Um, but it's a cool neighborhood. You know, we can walk to a million things, which I love, um, but we have great schools. And it's kind of been the first place I've lived as an adult where I really feel, I felt like a really strong sense of home right away, um, which was really special to me because we've moved a lot. And yeah, just the people here are pretty vibrant. They're active. They like to do things. They read books. They, you know, eat interesting food. And I don't know, it's just kind of a fun place to live. And it's a good place for our kids to grow up and just be around people that really embrace life. Well, Philly's somewhat of a, a microcosm of America. I mean, for those that haven't been there, it's it's a really diverse city. So I wonder, you know, for you as you, you know, go from one neighborhood to another that's completely different from yours, how that maybe you know, forms and informs your writing. Yeah, you know, that actually is a great point because it is very much like that here. And it does, I think, for instance, if I traveled, you know, less than a mile from my house in a certain direction, it would be a completely different neighborhood. Not not like a terrible neighborhood or a better neighborhood, just a, just a very different feel, different community, different types of, you know, jobs, different styles, different everything. Um, and I think that's actually been really helpful for me as a writer and um, mainly because, you know, you, you get used to what you're used to. Like you live in one spot and you're around the same kind of, you know, similar people to yourself. And if you don't really leave your little area very often, which I don't, unless I'm going directly into the, you know, center city for something. Um, yeah. It's easy to just kind of have the mindset of this is how, whatever, this is how everyone lives. This is how everyone thinks. This is, you know, everyone's perspective on, you know, different topics. So it's been helpful to me to, you know, when I do, you know, go to a different area or I'm speaking at it with a group and to arrive and have this reminder of, you know, like I live in a little tiny bubble, just like most people do, but especially here, like you're kind of in a little bit of a bubble. So it's been a good reminder that when you go someplace else, um, especially this fall, I've been doing a lot of speaking just around like kind of regionally in this area, just to get out and see how different, you know, different areas are in the ways that people live their lives, the things that they care about. And there's a lot of overlap, but there is a lot of difference. And I think if you want to connect with a broader audience, like you have to really remember that people aren't living your life. They don't think everything that you think. And you have to be able to really relate to um, people in ways that are connected, meaningful amongst all of us, but by communicating maybe in a broader way that is um, accessible to different people groups, I guess. So uh, you just released The Bright Life, 40 Invitations to Reclaim Your Energy for a Full Life. This is an invitation into 40 days of reflection, discernment, and action. Uh, there's the obvious biblical significance to 40 days, but tell us more about the, the construct of this timeline. Yeah, we really shaped this book to kind of take you um, a little bit on a journey. It's, it is 40 different devotionals, 40 different days, but they're all related, but it does move you from, you know, point A to point B to point C kind of through a story. So it does follow a story in my own personal life, but every day has um, something new to grab onto, something new to, you know, let kind of bounce around in your heart and shed some light and then ways to really let that play out tangibly in your life that day or that week. 
Um, and, you know, it starts kind of by identifying, I'd say maybe like the first, you know, section of days maybe identifies kind of like this problem that we're all, this pattern we're all in that is a problem of just overextending ourselves, exhausting ourselves, you know, trying to scrape together this life that we think we need. And then it kind of moves into figuring out like how that doesn't work and then finding ways to really rest in God's love and move forward. And, and you kind of like follow along, like it's, it's kind of a together thing, like the reader and myself, like here's some things we're going to try and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes we're going to mess up, but we're going to keep moving forward because you know, we have that grace to keep trying. Um, and at the end of the book is really an encouragement to just um, like move forward really boldly with this kind of way of living and kind of understanding that if you are going to live your life in a way that really rests in God and trusts in his love and the value he's given you, then that is going to just kind of like blow people out of the water because it's so countercultural. And that's a good thing. So it's kind of an encouragement to just really embrace this way of life, to really live that bright life, and to let that really be another way that you preach the gospel to people around you. Hmm. This is your first book. Um, you're, you're giving voice to matters that uh, you've said bring a rhythm of grace into people's lives. So what's what's going on in your life that now is the time to write this, to give a voice to these things? Yeah, you know, I think that when I started working on this book, we were at a point in life as a family where we were just running way too hard. And, you know, my husband and I would stay up until two or three in the morning trying to get extra work done. And I would, you know, wake up early to try to get stuff done before the kids got up and then I'd get the kids out the door and then you just race all day. And I, I, you know, I said yes to every ask I volunteered in every capacity. Um, I just was really trying to do too much. And it, I think it is more than just, you know, trying to have it all or something, but I think we kind of all have this image in our head of what we think that our life should be like. And we really believe deep down that if we just, you know, try a little harder or a little more efficient, can squeeze more out of the day, squeeze more out of ourselves, that we're going to kind of attain this image that either we ourselves think we need or our culture thinks we need to, you know, finally have value and worth and to feel loved. And I think that, you know, we got to a spot where um, I was just completely run down. My husband became sick and, um, you know, partially due to stress and I still was not slowing down. Um, and it, it kind of just came to a halt where we had to make some drastic changes and they don't sound like drastic changes some of them were small but all the culmination of them did feel drastic just to start saying no to start going to bed earlier to trust that you know even if we're not gripping everything so tightly that that god has it so we don't have to grip it tightly one of the fascinating things about this book is that uh, you point out the global conflicts that's happening around us, um, both on a kind of a, I guess, a cosmic level, level and a, a local level. Yet this is an invitation mm-hmm. to to start small, to start the restoration um, with an individual, namely me, myself, and I. What has informed you uh, to begin with this individualistic approach first? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't know that I'd call it individualistic, but I do think that if we, I think a lot of times our tendency is to try to do so much for so many people, almost, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a savior complex, but we think that like we are the hope of the world. And so we run ourselves into the ground trying to kind of like, um, yeah, try to, you know, save this problem and fix this and help this person. And 
we are called as Christians to come alongside what God's doing in the world. But um, the thing is, it's what he's doing and he's inviting us to be a part of it in healthy ways. And he also, it's really clear in scripture that we're also called to have these rhythms of rest and to trust him that he's got and that he's in charge. It's his plan to restore the world, not ours. So, you know, when we are, I know for myself, I should start for myself, for myself, when I am doing way too much, staying up too late, you know, I'm overextending myself. I'm not really good for anyone. Like I have no room left for grace for other people. I have no room left for patience. You know, I might be accomplishing things, but my own heart is in a spot where it's resentful. I don't hear God's voice because there's too much noise and clutter going on in my life. So I think when we start to trust that God is the one healing this world, doing this work in people's hearts and, you know, in countries and in cities and in neighborhoods, um, that we can just, we can comfortably play our part without, you know, running ourselves into the ground to the point where we're actually almost doing the opposite. We're not bringing peace and comfort to the world. We're bringing more stress and more strife and less grace. I wouldn't necessarily say individualistic is, uh, you know, I wouldn't look at that as a, as a bad term. You know, I, I think we have a tendency, especially if we are people who tend to care for others. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that not everybody has that tendency in their life. Um, <laughs> we, we tend to take care of others more than we take care of ourselves. And sometimes the best way to take care of others is to take care of ourselves, to, to do self-care, to do familial self-care, to mm-hmm. physical, spiritual, all kinds of self-care. So that's one of the things I loved about your approach is to say, look, you know, this is a, this is introspection. This is looking within yourself to, to figure out how you might go forward. And you brought up uh, the book of Nehemiah a couple of times, which is one of my favorite books. I actually started a series this past Sunday um, out of the book of Nehemiah with our church. And, you know, one of the things about Nehemiah is he spends the first chapter and a half of that book listening to God within himself. <laughs> it's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a self-analysis to see what can he do about the calamity that's happening in his world and the city of Jerusalem? And after he listens to himself and discerns what God is calling him to, he then goes and listens to his city and to his neighbors and together they collaborate mm. their giftedness and resources and strengths to do what is necessary. So uh, one of the things I found brilliant about your book is, is that self care piece um, to take care of yourself, to look within yourself, to discover, um, in order to be able to speak to the global conflict, the local conflict. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I love, I love that you're doing Nehemiah right now. Like that is the thing is I, it is when we're able to slow down and actually hear from God and, you know, and let him transform our hearts. And I think that's, that is when we're able to engage in those, you know, smaller, you know, problems in your family or your community or even large scale problems in the world in ways that are actually meaningful and the ways that we're really called to. So I think otherwise we're kind of just in this frenzied state of trying to do it all, um, you know, and keep all the balls in the air and, you know, you know, I don't know, get everything done that we can squeeze into a day. But um, when we are able to actually slow down and listen to God's voice and kind of sense where the Holy Spirit's leading us, I think that's when, I think that's when the real good work happens. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I think uh, social justice um, is an integral part of the gospel, but I think sometimes we have a tendency, um, especially those that think outward with this gospel message, that we fail to see the implications of injustice that we might commit within our relationships, within our family, 
uh, for the sake of seeking justice out in our community. And so I mm-hmm. love that you talk about pausing to take care of family, pausing to take care of relationships, pausing to take care of self, uh, because in a sense that can be an injustice um, for the sake of other other things. You, you spoke about in, in the book, you, you invite people uh, to look inward and upward and outward. Um, tell us more about this this rhythm of introspection. Yeah, um, I really like I mean, that's a practice that I've had for myself um, in different seasons of life. And the thing that I like about it is looking, a lot of times we don't even pause to even know what we ourselves are feeling. <laughs> um, and so I think that stopping to really consider like where we are in life, where's our heart, you know, where, like, what are our thoughts swirling around? What anxieties do we have? Um, I think that that's something that weirdly we just don't do a lot of, even though in some ways, like we kind of are a little bit self-absorbed as a culture, but not in a way that is meaningful. Um, and then taking that, what, what we find there and kind of offering that up to God and saying, you know, how do you want to shape my heart or committing to trusting him? Um, but knowing like it doesn't just stop with, oh, well, I'm just now I, you know, I see where I'm at. So I want to be a better person or I'll try harder. But knowing that ultimately, like we look inwards so that we can then offer that up to God and let him work in our hearts. And he does the actual work. We just, you know, allow him to do that. And then that looking outward, I think is, is super key because it has to, any, any kind of theology is somewhat meaningless if it doesn't actually impact your real life. Um, so I think taking what you've learned there, what God is doing and actually saying, well, what does this mean for my life today? How does this change the way that I live? How does this change the way that, you know, I, you know, operate in my home or interact with my neighbors or, you know, the work that I do. Um, I think pausing to actually commit to tangible change. Even, and, and in this book, I mean, the looking outward, I would say the tangible, the tangible pieces, it's nothing, it's nothing earth shattering that you can't do. It's nothing that's going to take you 30 hours to organize and create from scratch, but it's little things. I think all those little things add up to an overall lifestyle change that is really important. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You know, for you, as you experience this this pattern of, of looking inward and upward and outward, you know, have you found at times that um, that this rhythm takes on a, a new leader? So maybe you have you found that you sometimes have to look outward in order to discover what's inward and upward? Yeah, you know, I think there are those times because sometimes we don't really even know the actual feelings that are inside of us. You know, we're unaware because we've got, we kind of grow accustomed kind of tucking some of these things away. So 
I think sometimes it's taking that step to, you know, say, okay, I really think it would be a healthier choice to go to bed earlier. And maybe it's not until you start trying to go to bed earlier that you realize how panicked it makes you feel. And then you look inward and think, oh my goodness, like I'm afraid to go to bed earlier because I'm you know, going to fall behind in life or because I won't you know, get these things done that impress a certain person or keep my spot in these social circles or what, you know, try to get this promotion, whatever it may be for you. I think sometimes that is the key is like you start with an outward change and, and you're almost surprised to find out what's inward, which I think is good though, because then you can, again, offer that upward to God and you know, allow him to help change your heart and shape your heart in that area. So I have to admit, um, my favorite invitation was number 18, drowning puppies. Okay. Take us, <laughs> take us into that a little bit. Yeah. So drowning puppies came from, um, I mean, originally from a preaching group that I was in for a couple of years around Philadelphia with, um, predominantly men preachers and then myself just as someone who fills in. And, you know, we we're talking about how in a sermon, you know, you come up with all these great ideas. Um, you know, you might find, you know, brilliant insights and you do all this research and you spend all this time, but then when it really comes down to it, you're trying to communicate something in, you know, 20 to 35 minutes and you need to let some good things go, even though they're good. And so my friend Paul, who's in this group said something along the lines of, you know, it's really hard, but sometimes you just have to drown some puppies. And I, I was a little horrified, again, being the only female in the group, I think I'm the only one who was like, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but, but I thought it was really true, because then the next day, I, you know, I was at this group, it's in the evening, it goes, I don't know, from late afternoon into the evening, I get back the next morning, get my kids out the door and sit down to kind of start going through just, you know, my massive, you know, pile of new emails in my inbox. And I just felt really stressed because I'd been so busy. I was doing all these different things. And I start opening these emails and it's, you know, invitations to attend different things or groups to join, projects to be part of, things to volunteer with. And it was all good things. I, and I kept thinking, well, geez, like these are all things that would be fun or good or I'd feel good about being a part of or be meaningful to do this or helpful to this person. And I literally just heard Paul's voice in my head saying like, sometimes you have to drown some puppies. And I thought, wow, that is going to stick with me forever because <laughs> it was such a horrifying statement, but it's so true is that, you know, there are so many good opportunities in life, things that are fun, things that, you know, would help people, things that, you know, might move you like an inch further along in the certain direction that you care about. But ultimately saying yes to all these good things is just leaving us in a place that isn't good. It's leaving us in a place where we're completely depleted and we're run down and we're unhappy and we're crabby and um, and our relationships are probably at that point running on fumes. So learning to say no to even some really good things and things we might enjoy, I think is where we actually find the life we really want is sometimes in letting go of some of those things that we think we think we want those, but really what we want is like a fulfilled and content and restful life. And I think that to do that, we have to let go of some of those things. So how do you practically decide which puppy to drown? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, for myself, I did, after that happened, I did take time to sit down and think through, you know, what for me are like my top values for my time right now. Um, and that was really hard to do because I tend to be a person who, I don't, I have a lot of energy. 
I have, you know, I love people. So I have a lot of relationships I care about. Um, and I really care a lot about a lot of things. And that sounds really cheesy to say, but I do like, I see, you know, problems or groups or all these different things you can be a part of. I'm like, oh, that's so important. Oh, that's so meaningful. Oh, that's so great. And I know that I can pull off a lot. So the trick for me is learning that I can't, I can't do it well and, and, and live the life I want to live, but also knowing, you know, what to say no to. So I had to pause and take some time. And it, you know, I thought about it for a few days, really. Like, what are the top few things that are the most important for my time right now? Um, and then, so for me, like it kind of, I boiled it down to three things. One, you know, I have two boys that are about middle school age at this point. And so like for me, and the no brainer is, you know, pouring into them in ways that they know they're like loved deep in their bones and that like shapes everything in their life. So loved by God and of course by myself. Um, and so that, and that doesn't mean being a part of every, you know, school activity and, you know, things like that, but it does mean that that's going to be pouring into them and making sure they know that they're loved is like, you know, one of my top priorities. Second for me was investing like hyper locally in my community. Um, and so that might be, you know, like I helped to organize like, um, an outdoor movie series in the summers or, you know, doing service projects different, or, you know, even just making sure I have time to have my neighbors for dinner or, you know, pausing to talk with people on the sidewalk. Like that actually is even something as simple as having time to talk to someone on the sidewalk, like that is falls within for me, one of my top priorities. And then the third one was just kind of more career-based and, but again, kind of, um, funneling that down to the most important part for me is having to like focusing on speaking and writing. So kind of when the opportunities would come up, if it was just something fun and I had time to be social, I can say yes. But if it's something that doesn't fall into one of those three categories really clearly, for me, it's probably just a no right now. And that's hard because there's things that people ask me to do. And I think, oh, that would be fun. Or I could organize that. Or, you know, I could design this thing um, because I could. <laughs> But then those top areas are going are gonna to fall, fall through the cracks, those top values. And the greater value overarching is kind of living, living the bright life. And, that, and to do that, I have to be able to say no to these other things. All right. So something to know about me is I have, I have a tendency towards cynicism. In my own defense, mm -hmm. I tend to be the most cynical about myself. When I fit in with a cynical world. Yet I'm reminded of the wise words of Stephen Colbert. Cynicism masquerades as wisdom. Mm -hmm but it's the furthest thing mm. from it because cynicism doesn't learn anything. Cynicism is self-imposed blindness a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. This world doesn't need more cynics. It needs more happy hearts. And you wrote somehow happiness has gotten a bad rap. You almost feel shamed for seeking happiness. Happiness, some will say is shallow. So let's not discount or forget the power of happy hearts. Yeah. Take us a little bit more That's, into that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually just reread that one this morning because it is about some friends I was with last night. And it, I just thought, I need, I'm going to go back and peek at that. And it was actually a good reminder for myself um, because I think I, I do sometimes struggle on my own with almost feeling guilty when I create time for things that just make me happy. Um, I don't know why I have sometimes have this bent towards thinking that if I'm not a little bit miserable, like I must be, you know, wasting my time or I must be, you know, not 
buckling down and doing the hard work of life that I'm supposed to be doing. And that's really, really not a great outlook on the world or a great way to think about um, living your life. And, you know, and I think that it does come back to, we are kind of taught like, oh, of course, seek joy. And of course we want like, joy is something that we can consistently have all the time because we have joy in the Lord and we have hope that, you know, one day, like us in the world, like everything will be made whole and right. And that can, you know, that does bring us joy. Um, but happiness is not a bad thing. And I think finding ways to, you know, I don't know, like just do things that do make you happy, um, connecting with friends, doing something fun. It's, it's not a badge of honor to be miserable all the time, but we kind of think that it is like to be running so hard that we're just tired we're a little irritated, we're, you know, we have no room left for anything. That's when we feel like we're living our best life because we must really be giving it our all. Um, but really our best life includes, you know, those things that should bring us happiness, like meaningful relationships and having space to slow down and engage, you know, in like silly things with our kids or doing something goofy with your neighbors or, you know, taking time out of your day at work to go for a walk outside and just enjoy the beautiful weather. Um, those things are actually really good for our hearts. And I think I'm trying to, yeah, I have it right here. Um, in Proverbs 17, 22, it says a cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. And I read that verse and I thought that is, that is a really good reminder for myself and hopefully for other people as well. Just that, you know, having a cheerful heart, it does, it keep, it kind of buoys your spirit for, when things feel hard or for the mundane parts of the day. So I don't know, I've, I've kind of, and this is something I actually have to newly commit to even, even as recently as a few months ago, I was like, why am I kind of denying myself like opportunities to be happy? But I think it's because I almost worry that, you know, I'm not being deep and meaningful and hardworking and all these, all these things that we think are the most important. But um, yeah, I think, allowing ourselves those opportunities and maybe even seeking them out to just have a cheerful heart. I think that can really transform the rest of our days. Hmm. I think it's powerful. I mean, I, I know it sounds silly, but I think it's become fashionable to be a busy person. I think it's become mm-hmm. fashionable to always have to give an opinion of what's happening in the world. And of course <laughs> that creates so much stress, so much anxiety. And while some of those things are important stresses, important anxiety, as you said, we're also called to joy. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, what's your greatest hope for this book? You know, I just, when I first started, I mean, even when I went to seminary, I would say, I, I think I said this earlier in this, in this conversation, I didn't really have a specific career path in mind, but what I, and when I started my blog, I didn't have a end goal. I didn't even think, Oh, I want to write a book one day. It wasn't, no, neither of those things were really about that. I think what I really cared about and what still is kind of the driving force of what I do and what I try to really spend my time on um, is that I want people to engage their faith in a way that it matters for everything in their life. And, if that means, you know, extending, you know, love to someone who's hurting, who, you know, is a parent from your kid's school or someone at work, or if that means you pause for 20 minutes during the day to play the piano because it's just recreation and it lifts your spirits, or, you know, if it means you make healthier choices with your boundaries or with eating or with getting outside and getting moving, 
I just want people to know like this relationship with God and what Jesus has done for us. It's not, it's not shackles. It's not a set of rules and to do's and more tasks. It's, it's this like beautiful, bright life where you get to allow, like allow what God's done in your heart to infiltrate every part of your life in a really beautiful and meaningful way. And that doesn't mean it's going to be without pain or without, you know, stress or without troubles because it, Definitely life is always going to have those. Um, but it does mean that, yeah, it just, I think I want people to engage their faith in a way where it shapes and changes every part of who they are. And that by us living a bright life, then it, you know, that's something that pours out to other people. So I guess I'm just, yeah, I, I want people to come through the same journey that I'm on with me and say, you know, I can let go of all these expectations, whether they're religious expectations or cultural expectations or the ones I place in myself and just lean into this love of God that invites us into, I don't just this really beautiful, bright life. So the book came out on January the 8th. So what's next for you? You know, right now, um, talking to people like this and doing some speaking and you know, I'm starting to put together my ideas for um, a second book, and that's kind of fun, something different, but kind of building building further into, yeah, some of the same ideas. So, yeah, kind of those are the things I'm focusing on right now, which is really fun. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Jen, you can visit her website, restorationliving.org. Of course, you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and of course, go out and purchase The Bright Life. Jen, thank you for inviting us to have a happy heart in a cynical world. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.